So have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Ooh, look at that. Chronicles of Narnia? The chronic what? Coles of Narnia? Anyway, um, how about if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, have you at least read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the most famous book from that? Or maybe you've seen the movies. These books are known as allegory, which means they are stories that can be interpreted to reveal hidden meaning. They symbolize more than what the story says outright. Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, it symbolizes every stage of the Christian experience. The Chronicles of Narnia has many themes it symbolizes, but Aslan, for example, the lion in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, is a symbol of Christ, a picture of Jesus. Of the Narnia movies, which this absolute, I'm a lo- I love the Narnia books. I've read them all. This drove me crazy. The, the, the first movie was right on. It stayed with the allegory, but the rest of the movies kind of went like loosely based. <laughs> like, let's go over here. Like, there's this island in the third movie that's fighting against, her. it's like, that's not what the book, they totally missed it. So did you know that there's also allegory mentioned in Scripture? Paul, speaking of the births of Isaac and Ishmael in the book of Galatians, uh, particularly Galatians 4.24, the first part of the verse, he says, Now this may be interpreted as alleg- or this may be interpreted allegorically. This may be interpreted allegorically. And what he's saying there is there is a deeper meaning that can be taken from the historical events that exist in the Old Testament. There is a story behind the story in these histories that we find in the Old Testament. And the story behind the story of all of Scripture is about Jesus. I saw, I was reading something this week online, and it it said one book, one story about one person. And it's about that person, Jesus. But what's really cool is Jesus is about us, so we're included. He includes us in his story. So it's about Jesus, but it's also about us because Jesus has included us in his story. So the events in the Old Testament are real events that happened. But the Holy Spirit working in these events recorded these events in such a way that it was, it would share for us in the way that it was recorded, it would share for us pictures of spiritual truths that point to Jesus. And these spiritual pictures point to Jesus and they point to how Jesus actually takes these truths and and in his trip to the cross and through the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, how the truths that are pictured here actually became real in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And so this is particularly helpful as we approach a book like Ruth, which we're going to be in Ruth starting today and through the end of, Lord willing, the end of November. And that's why I say Lord willing, willing, because if something happens, we, we, you know, maybe we all go home before that and we don't get a finish. I don't know. So a book of Ruth, it's very, very helpful to understand the allegory behind it. One reason is because that in the book of Ruth, God is hardly mentioned at all. He's only mentioned 25 times. 
And in those 25 mentions, he's not, he's not speaking or doing something. He's actually talked about. The people in this story are asking that God may do something or grant something. And then they also interpret how God is working in their lives. And they don't always interpret well. And so if Ruth was just a history lesson, we'd interpret this book as teaching us moral living and some sort of distant trust in a God that's somewhere out there. And, this, and the depiction of God in Ruth would lead us to believe that God is external, he's distant, and mostly disinterested in the affairs of people. But if we dig a little deeper, if we look a little bit behind what's going on in this story, we'll find that there's much more to discover. We'll meet a God who is at work in the ordinary and mundane. He's at work in the ordinary and mundane affairs of people's lives. And in that work, he's pointing to Jesus as our way to have a deep, meaningful, connected relationship with him. And so this next couple of weeks is going to be a little different. I'm a little apprehensive about doing a message like this. I've never done something like this where we're going to look at a story. And we're going to go through a story. And we're going to look to dig behind that story and see what it's talking about. And so for some of you, this may feel a little uncomfortable. Because it's not like, hey, let's just take Galatians and let's just work our way through it. And let's just pound, 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 pound. And it's just a dissertation and let's break it down. This is going to feel a little more like reading Narnia. This is going to feel like Pilgrim's Progress. And I hope you'll be excited to come along in the journey as we go through this. So let's begin the book of Ruth. It's only one of two books in all of the Bible that are named after women. The other book is Esther. It's a factual account of a Moabite woman named Ruth and her love story that culminates in marriage. Oh. It feels like the plot of a Hallmark movie, my friends. We're in that season, right? We're getting close. Where girl meets boy, girl and boy fall in love. There's some sort of challenge in their relationship. It resolves and then they all, it just ends up happily ever after. Right? Mm. Don't you just want to grab a pumpkin spice latte and just curl up on the couch? <laughs> That's the book of Ruth. That is the book of Ruth. So the story takes place sometimes between the time of the judges around 1375 B.C. and 1040 B.C., which is the birth of David. The events covered occur over a period of 11 to 12 years. Verses 1 to 5, which is all we're going to look at today, actually covers 10 of those 11 to 12 years. So the first five, the first five, uh, first five verses, blah, blah, blah. the first five verses, you say that five times fast. The first five verses are, I'm sorry to say, tragic. <laughs> we don't get into the ooh, love parts. So this might, you might spill your pumpkin spice latte at this point, <laughs> but the first five verses feel a lot like a country song. Everything that could go wrong does go wrong, right? 
And it feels like you need to play the song backwards to get all that stuff back, if you're familiar with that sort of saying. So our one big idea that we want to get from Ruth 1, 1 through 5 is this. We want to get that separation from God is death. Separation from God is death. So we're going to go ahead and read Ruth 1, 1 through 5. And it says, In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn, the English standard version, sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, like Elimelech, Elimelech, sorry. Uh, And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their son were Malon and Kilian, not Chilion, Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, two, uh, these, these, two, these sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was or- Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman, that being Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So the first thing we realize, or the first thing we should notice right out of the gate, is that this story is set when the judges ruled, which is one of the lowest points in Israel's history. During that time, the Jews have abandoned God, which leads to brutality, civil war, unrest of every kind, national upheaval. This is during the time of the judges. And the last verse of the book of Judges summarizes well the state of affairs in Israel during this time. Judges 21, 25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Next we learn there was a famine, which means that there is a lack of food. So because of this famine, a man and his family leave Bethlehem and go to live in Moab. What's interesting is that Bethlehem, which we all know is where Jesus is born, but Bethlehem, the town, literally means house of bread. There's a famine, and this family decides to leave the house of bread to go find food. Be like leaving Franz, right? (laughs) What are you doing? And they left the house of bread, they left God's land to go to Moab. Moab is Israel's ancient enemy. And do you know where Moab comes from? It's a country that was started out of Lot's family line. And when Lot fled from um, Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife turned around and became a pillar of salt, him and his daughters escape into the mountains. And they're in a cave And the older daughter goes to the younger daughter, and she's like, there's no chance for us to continue our family line. I've got a great idea. Let's get dad drunk. Let's sleep with him and get pregnant so we can continue our family line. And they do it. And the oldest daughter births a child that now becomes the head of the Moabite country. So Moab is a country that is born out of an ancestral relationship 
that sets up this idea that this family leaves God's land, the house of bread, and goes to this land that represents an enemy of God and completely against God and completely against Israel. And Moab is, an, is a thorn in the side for Israel for many, many years. And so what we see in this idea of Moab is it's the same as the theme of Judges. The daughter, Lot's daughter basically said, we don't know how we're going to do this, so we're going to take things into our own hands and make this happen ourselves. So next in the, form, in the story, we're, we're formally, we give a formal introduction to the names of the family, beginning with Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. Do, 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 do. Sorry. It's just really hard not to go there. Elimelech's name actually has a meaning. When you get into Hebrew stuff, you begin to realize that everything has a meaning. And Elimelech's name is, my God is king. I don't think that Elimelech is living by his namesake. If God was his king, he would live by faith, trusting God to take care of him. But instead, he lives by sight and takes matters into his own hands. And he moves his family to Moab. To Moab, which represents the enemy of Israel and the enemy of God. We're also introduced to Elimelech's wife. Her name also has a meaning. It means pleasure. It means pleasure. And again, we see here, Elimelech is not being true to his namesake. He's stepping outside of God's plan for him. He's seeking pleasure rather than being a lover of God. A lover of God who should be his king, according to his namesake. From this marriage between my God is king and pleasure, you have two children, Malon and Killian. Guess what? Their names have meaning too. I don't know who would name their kids this. Malon's name means sick, like physically sick, sickness. And Killian's name means sick, but not physically sick. It's like pining away. It's mental decline. It's mental decline that leads to physical symptoms like somebody with a broken heart. Who would name their kids that? You notice these aren't used as biblical names, right? Like, hey, I'm going to name my two kids, Malon and Killian, you know? So Malon and Killian are what comes from my God is king and pleasure. And so these two children represent this idea that my God is king's choice to marry pleasure over God results in nothing but sickness of every kind. And so the end of verse 2 reminds us that they were past tense Ephrathites, which literally means inhabitants of Bethlehem. And so they are no longer inhabitants of Bethlehem, but now they are inhabitants of Moab. Scripture, I think I've talked about a lot of my previous messages. When you're in something, you're identified with that thing. When you're in Bethlehem, you're an inhabitant of Bethlehem, you're identified with what Bethlehem is. But when you're in Moab, you're identified with what Moab is. 
And this family, by leaving Bethlehem, is now identified with a family, that are, with a, a land and a place that's against God and against his covenant people of Israel. And so my God is king moves to Moab. Next, we're notified that Elimelech dies in Moab, and all that remains are Naomi and his two sons. And you know what his two sons do? They follow his dad's great wisdom, and they marry Moabite women. Moabite women. The Israelites were not to marry any women who had false gods from other countries. The only chance for them to do that was if those people renounced their false gods and gave their life to the one true God. But these women, it's not clear that they had, but these boys still marry and they follow in their footsteps, in the footsteps of their father. And so the women they married were Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth. They have meaning to their names too, but you're going to have to wait till next week. So that's the hook. It makes much more sense to talk about the meanings of their names next week anyway. So finally, we're told that they're in Moab for about 10 years. And just like that, Elimelech, uh, Elimelech, sorry, and just like Elimelech, both Malon and Kilian die, leaving Naomi without her husband and her sons, and Orpah and Ruth without their husbands. And so there's a lot more story going on here. So let's take a lot of what I've just shared. I've given you sort of this dump, like this information, but now let's take this and begin to look at the allegorical meaning that exists here in the book of Ruth. Let's interpret some of the spiritual meaning that's behind this. And there's a lot packed into these five verses. Elimelech is a man who symbolizes what man is supposed to be. God was supposed to be man's king. In being man's king, he was to be his authority. Not in a domineering, over-controlling way, but in a protective way, in an overseeing way. That's who God was supposed to be. And this relationship with God and man was supposed to be a personal one. It was supposed to be intimate. God was supposed to be available to man, and man's dominion was supposed to flow from the relationship that they had with God. Elimelech symbolizes what Adam and Eve were supposed to be when God created them and placed them in the Garden of Eden. Elimelech is the ultimate picture of what Adam and Eve were supposed to be in the Garden. Remember that it also said this was the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel. This symbolizes the serpent, Satan, his temptation in the garden, which was to question God's authority. Is he really king? Is God really king? Does he really have the right to rule? I think there is no king. I think you should be king. And all you have to do is reach out and eat this fruit. Also remember that there's a famine. There's a lack. There's a shortage of food. Again, Satan's temptation. What was Satan's temptation? Satan's temptation was, I think God's holding out on you.
I think he's shortchanging you. You're lacking because he's not giving it all to you. So I think you should be king. You don't need him. You've got everything you need in yourself. And Adam and Eve bought the lie, and, and in Genesis it says that the, uh, the fruit was a delight to the eye. This is where Naomi comes in. Naomi pictures the pleasure of the fruit. Elimelech and Naomi's marriage is the acting on that pleasure, the taking of the fruit, and the bringing of the fall of man. Elimelech and Naomi's marriage produced sons, and both sons have names of sickness of some sort or another, whether it's physical, psychological, or spiritual sickness. And because of that decision, because of the, the Elimelech and Naomi marriage, because of the Adam and Eve taking the fruit, taking what was good to the eyes, taking what was pleasurable for them, taking what, what was only for them, we entered in to a separation from God. And the world entered into a, a byproduct that came out of Adam and Eve that spread sickness throughout all of humanity. And this family, this family that has this outcome, they moved to Moab, which pictures how all of humanity became separated from God. And they didn't just become separated. Romans 5.10 said that we became his enemies. We became his enemies. And also remember that there was another key distinctive of the time of judges. That key distinctive was that everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How do we determine doing right from wrong? Wouldn't you say knowing good and evil? See, there were two trees in the garden. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was also the tree of life. And Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That, that tree was not just, I would always read that. Again, I don't know if you've found this with scriptures like Romans 8, 28. God causes good things. No, it's God causes all things to work together for good. When it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we, I would always just read it. Well, that's the knowledge of evil. No. It was the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate from that tree, their eyes were open to knowing the difference between good and evil, not just evil. And that made them like God. Satan didn't fully lie. It just was slightly twisted because it was like God, but without the power, the nature, or the ability to be God. They could determine right and wrong, but had no power to execute. That's a horrible existence. 
awareness without power. Awareness without ability to do something. It reminds me of, uh, this just popped in my head, Scrooge, the, the, if you've ever read Charles Dickens, and we're getting into Christmas season, I always like to go through that book during the Christmas season, and when he is looking out on the helpless souls that have, can now see what they missed in their opportunity to help humanity, and they're crying out, woe is me, I can't do anything about it. That's what's going on here with Adam and Eve. When they ate from the tree, they had all the ability to see and no power to execute. So mix in this knowing good and evil with I'm my own God and spiritual sickness and separation from God and every single decision that will be made will be made for what's best for myself and what serves me and what meets my needs. So this isn't just about, oh, I did something wrong. I stole a candy bar from the store. It's so much more than that. It's selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, getting my needs met, being a big vacuum and sucking the life out of everything and everyone around me. That's the existence of mankind. That's what Adam and Eve plunged us into. And, and it's, it's hereditary. It's passed generation after generation after generation. Thanks, great, 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 whatever, grandmother and grandfather. We really appreciate that. Thank you. It's a great gift you've given. Finally, the family, Elimelech and Naomi, they move from Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. Bread is sustenance. Bread is what gives life. If you don't eat, you will die. God is life. If you do not have God, you do not have life. And they left God, and so they lost life. And that led to an outcome of death. First to Elimelech, and then it passed to his sons, And this pictures the spiritual death that Adam and Eve experienced in their separation from God. They didn't die physically. They didn't, they didn't like, like, because I I think I shared this before. You know, God said the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die, right? In my mind, I'm thinking, as soon as I touch that and eat that fruit, I'm seeing a big lightning bolt coming from the sky and all that's left on the ground is a smoke and burn mark on the ground, right? Isn't that what you think? That's not what the Bible says. Like, that, that should have been where the book ends, right? It would be a much shorter scripture. So they didn't die physically. They didn't become mindless, emotionless robo- robots. They could still think. They could still feel. They could still make decisions. Then how did they die? They were separated from God. They were separated from life. They died spiritually. Those who worship God worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we show up on planet earth, we are dead spiritually. And that is what's pictured in this opening element of the book of Ruth. And it plays itself out, feeding to all of humanity. And we, it's, Paul describes this state in Romans 5.12. In Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
You poison the well, the whole well goes bad. And Adam and Eve's decision to separate created a lasting heritage of separation from God and death that was passed on generation to generation. And so this explains why when we look out at the world today, we see death everywhere. Although everybody's up and around and looking like, hey, I'm alive. No, this is an experience of death, buddy. This ain't fun. So there's a lot here, right? Well, there's a lot in this first five verses. So how do we bring it forward to today? Well, our one big idea for today is separation from God is death. Separation from God is death. And I want to focus in two specific ways that this plays itself out. We must understand that death has two major meanings in Scripture. One is the absence of life, which we're all pretty aware of. But it can also have a sense of meaning of weakness. And so we're going to look at these two elements of death and this idea of separation from God. First, the absence of life. This is for those who have not given themselves to Jesus. If you've not given yourself to Jesus, you remain in the family line of Adam and Eve. And you benefit from being in that family line, just like Elimelech and Naomi benefited from living in Moab. It's not really a benefit. And so if you have not given yourself to him, then in that case, you are literally separated from God. He is still your enemy, and you still only have yourself. You are spiritually dead. You have no life because you are still in that, that family line of Adam and Eve. If this is not addressed, you will remain in this condition. And that condition will go on into eternity. Not a fun message to share. But that doesn't have to be the case, friend. That does not have to be the case. Today you can turn and go a different direction. Today you can call on the name of Jesus. And as scripture says, you will be saved. And he will take you from that line of Adam and now place you into the line of Jesus, which we will get to explore a lot more as we go through the book of Ruth. That addresses the absence of life when it comes to the, the death definition. But the second meaning is weakness. And that's for those of you that are walking with Jesus, for those of you that have given yourselves to him. But see, the hitch is you may give yourself to Jesus as sort of fire insurance. I, I want my sins forgiven and I want the trip to heaven. Right? And that's a good invitation, but there's so much more to it than that. But if that's all we have, we're very likely to choose a life that still says, I determine what's right for me on my own terms. 
And I know I've already shared this a few times, but that's where you pack up that suitcase from the Adam and Eve house before you leave. And you carry that suitcase to the house of Jesus and you've got a fully furnished house in Jesus and you're still pulling out of that old suitcase and living out of those old ways that make you feel like this is how it works. This is how it's always worked. This is what I do to get my needs met. This is what I do because it's what's best for me. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're living as though God is not available to you. You're a Christian who's living like a non-Christian. And sometimes that's just because you didn't know any different. But sometimes it's for other reasons. Sometimes you know better. And so you're living as though God's not available to you. You're living as though you're separated. And the reality is that you're not separated. That's part of the lie. See, the enemy's trap isn't, if he can't keep you from getting into the family of God, what's his next tactic? To keep you from living out of the full benefit that the family of God has to provide you. So step one, keep you from coming and entering. Step two, keep you from living the fullness that it has to offer. Permanent death, now weakness. If you're not living out of the fullness of the family of God, you are weak. You're not going to be able to live the life that God intended you to live. You're not living the full abundant life that God told you, has told you about in Jesus. And so that living, this, this form of living independent from God, although you're a believer, is what the Bible calls flesh. Flesh is me meeting my needs in my own way, not getting my needs met in God. And Romans 8, 6 says that a mind set on the flesh is, guess what? Death. Meaning a mind set on, it's for me, I need to protect myself, guard myself, get my needs met, make this happen. Instead of, God, how do you want to care for me? How do you want to provide? How do you want to be involved? How do you want to be here? How do you want to work in me and through me? So a mindset on the flesh is death. It's living out of my own resources, my own thinking, and it's ignoring God who you're joined to. Why? I get it. I've lived this. I know sometimes it's just I was so hurt and I was so protected. I'm like that wounded dog in the corner with the paw that's been injured and someone tries to help and I snap, right? Sometimes that's what these protections are there for. But there's a time that those things need to be put away and done away with. And we need to run full headlong into Jesus, into God, into relationship with him. See, it's, it's a wonderful gift to no longer have to be the God of your own life, but to let the one who's best suited, God himself, do the job. And so, 
just as with the, un, the, the person who hasn't given themselves to Jesus, we have an opportunity too. We don't have to stay that way. I don't care what you're hearing. I don't care the lies that exist. You don't have to stay living out of your own bag of tricks any longer. That can come to an end today. And in both of these cases, whether it's physical, literal separation, or it's still living out of your own resources, talk to me. Pull me aside. Talk to Robin, who's one of our elders. Brad, who's not here today. Talk to Bruce when he's back from vacation. Fill out a connection card. Grab somebody who you think is spiritually mature and ask them to pray with you and to encourage you and to talk with you, to walk with you. Because you don't need to stay the way you are. You don't have to keep saying, well, that's just the way I am. Jesus died so you don't have to continue to be that I am anymore. You can be a different I am. So this didn't really start like a Hallmark movie. (laughs) But it's where it starts. It's where it starts. And so, friends, if you're experiencing weakness, if you're experiencing death, Begin to explore where the separations from God may exist, whether they're a literal separation or a figurative one because you've blocked off or weren't aware of your connection to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much that the book of Ruth was written. Thank you that the Holy Spirit empowered and gifted the writers to record this story in such a way that the real events point to a much more important event, which is the work of Jesus in our lives and in this world. Father, as we work our way through this book, I ask that you would make yourself known. I ask that Jesus would be made preeminent and known in a new way to each and every individual that comes through these doors. And Father, I pray for each and every individual in this room where they're at in their process of realizing a separation from you that they may be experiencing, whether it's a literal or just experiential, that each person would look to you and run to you to be separated from that death and to now find life in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.